welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 194. Thank you for joining us. Today, friend of the Colby Cast, Therese Prudlow, joins Bonnie and I to welcome Amanda Shepard to the Colby Cast. Amanda is the vice president of the Fort Wayne Museum of Art and co host of the Catholic Art History Podcast. She invites us to explore art in all its forms. Whether this exploration is to have our souls lifted by the beauty of the art or to better understand the thoughts and souls of the artist and his times, the homeschooling environment might be the perfect opportunity to explore this beauty with our children. We hope that you'll enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, Colby homeschooling mom of four lads and lasses, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and chief homeschooling officer for Colby Academy. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Doing very well. It's a great start to the new year here as we're recording. Yeah, this is our first recording of 2024. We're doing today, getting ready for Lent, which is going to be here before we know it. And once when this airs, will be right upon us. So uh, we are joined by a friend of the Colby cast, Therese Prudlow. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Bonnie. Good morning, Stephen. It's great to be here as always. We always love it when you come visit with us and, and join our conversations uh, to kick us off for the new year, we have invited Amanda Shepard, who is Chief Operating Officer and Vice President of the Fort Wayne Museum of Art and co-host of the Catholic Art History Podcast. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the Colby Cast. Hi, I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you. I, I'm really glad you're joining us. I've been enjoying your podcast, um, Art and Art History. The, these are not strong suits for me. So between you and Therese, I think you guys are going to help me out quite a lot in that area. I'm looking forward to getting the two of you talking. And so, Amanda... For our listeners who have not yet discovered the Catholic Art History Podcast, which I have a link to in our show notes, would you tell us about yourself and your background and so forth? Sure. Uh, well, I think we're here to open the gates of art history for everybody. It doesn't have to be a mythological thing. It can be, uh, we can break it down for people. And, th- and that's a lot of what I do at the Fort Wayne Museum of Art, um, because Most people don't study art in school. They might in their grade school, you know, have some art making classes, which is a good thing. But most schools don't teach art history to students. Um, And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be part of the curriculum, but it's such a broad and interesting world that can teach us so much about the human person. I think that's a lot of what it's about. We'll get into this later, but art making is distinctively human, and it's one of the many gifts that we have from our father. So I think a lot of people should should learn about art history, and it doesn't have to be difficult and opaque. Um, That's a lot of what we're about here in Fort Wayne, uh, living in a, you know, mid-sized Midwestern city. We have a lot of people who... um, you know, come from long lines of families who might be in manufacturing or farming. Um, You know, we had a lot of manufacturing here in the earlier part of the 20th century, and that legacy is still alive and well. So art history probably wasn't a major part of a lot of people's um, education. And we're here to provide a world-class experience that's accessible. Uh, As far as me personally, I grew up here in the Midwest, about an hour north of Fort Wayne, rural area, um, pretty small Catholic community. Um, 
I keep saying to myself as I get older that there are two things that I'm pretty darn sure of about myself that I love being Catholic and I love art. And um, those two paths haven't always been totally parallel or intertwined. Um, I've gone in different directions on both through various parts of my life. I studied painting at the University of Notre Dame. Um, actually wasn't very strong in my faith when I was in college at a Catholic university, unfortunately. You know, you have chapels in your dorm, but I didn't go to it. But I dove headlong into art um, and got my painting skills uh, pretty well mastered, art history, started working here at the Fort Wayne Museum of Art not long after graduation. As I matured, I found my way back to the faith and um, for the last 15 years, I've been building my career in museums. It's a lot of community-oriented work where you are focused on the needs of people and their creative interests. Um, as I've gotten older and more sure of what I want to do with my life, I've I've branched out into more ways that I could wrap my faith and my professional work up together. And that led to um, the Museum of Art underwriting some programming on Redeemer Radio, which serves the Northern Indiana region. And it turned out to be a big hit because we talked about it in down-to-earth ways, a lot of laughs, you know, a lot of um, context about the artists' lives. Um, a lot of context about the history and the you know politics of the time that informed the artworks and then of course we were describing the artworks to the listeners and you'd be surprised that that, that actually works pretty well is i think people like that uh imagination exercise of listening to something visual visual being described I've enjoyed listening to the episodes of your podcast and find them very timely for the liturgical year, which is one of the reasons that we are uh, timing this episode when when we are as Lent is beginning. Uh, would you take us back though to where your interest in art was kindled? How did that come to be? I mean, I think it's kindled by the Holy Spirit because I, it it just was always there with me as a child. I. My dad was a veterinarian and my mom is a speech, a retired speech therapist. So it's not as if we had, you know, a major art um, influence in our family. I've certainly never discouraged my, you know, my family was very proud for the way I could draw and paint. Um, it was encouraged though, um, my maternal grandfather took our family on a couple of international trips and trips to major cities growing up. And he took us to the Louvre and um, other major museums. And I remember thinking that I was in a holy place as a child. The artworks that I was looking at, I, I felt this almost vibrating aura coming from some of them. And I think that early exposure to masterpieces, you know, I still remember in my mind Claude Monet's um, Water Lilies, uh, the Mona Lisa. Um, it, it's 
it's just something that never leaves you. And when you see people from all over the world in awe of something that someone made hundreds of years ago, that makes a great impression on you as a child. So that coupled with my my natural talent in drawing, I can remember as a teenager copying album covers that I thought were really artistic and drawing those in my room, listening to the music and then, you know, copying the album art. Uh, I didn't think that it was a valid uh, career path. You know, I would say to my mom, I want to be an artist. And, you know, she might give me a patronizing smile like, that's nice, you know, no, you know, no, nothing, uh, you know, that broke my heart. But I, I, I think that my parents may have thought that that was naive. I had an equally strong interest in science and I actually thought I might become a doctor, uh, specifically an OBGYN. And um, when I got to Notre Dame, I, of course, you know, taking intro science classes and some intro art classes, and I got low grades in the science classes and high grades in the art classes. So I <laughs> I took that as a pretty strong message that I shouldn't continue with science and I should go with what I was doing well in. Um, again, I wasn't strong in my faith at the time, so I don't know. I, I don't think I could have uh, perceived that that was the Holy Spirit moving me. But of course, looking back, that's what that was. So, um, but I felt pretty strongly in my heart that I should continue with painting and study art history at the same time. I was not going to worry about what kind of job that was going to get me. Um, as I approached my senior year, I got more serious and thought, you know, you really need to get some professional experience. Um, I interned here at the Fort Wayne Museum of Art between junior and senior years found that I loved administration and planning programs and the workings of a nonprofit business. And then after graduation, I came back and started in the education department. Love that. Yeah. And you're really getting to share that, that love of art with all the people there. It, again, it, I was listening to your story and I had sort of a similar one, not as much in the drawing, but you know, as a child being exposed to these great works of art. And then I had the opportunity to, we had a local um, professor's wife that just decided um, I was homeschooled at the time. She's like, oh, I'm going to do this art history course. And I probably was the eighth or ninth grade. And it was just so profound and influential in everything. I was like, this is amazing. Um, and then going, my first museum, I think was the National Gallery because I grew up around the DC area in DC and seeing these works. And like you said, that, that human connection, I mean, that these are the human person, uh, is, is being creative and is imitating these, uh, gifts from God. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's something very, uh, you really feel that connection to them throughout time. So I think that's really beautiful. And, and of course being able to teach people and, um, and share your own excitement and passion is just one of my favorite things to do as well. So I, I love that. Yes, Therese, I completely agree. And it's something that I've been thinking about ever since I was a child, you know, one, what is art? What is it for? 
and what does it say about the human person? And it, it's like a flower that's just been opening up for me for the last 38 years. Um, and, you know, you, you might have different answers every year or the answers might mature and the more is revealed. It, it's just, it's just an endless um, journey into the heart of something really special that's uniquely human. A lifelong journey, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, it, it, you, I've seen these paintings, some of them several times and every time it's something new because I'm, I'm changing over time as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in my spiritual life, in all these different things, you're, you're, yeah, it awakens something new. And so it, it never gets old. No. Something that I have been reflecting on for a few years is how a work of art is, uh, it's a tangible connection to another person that you're separated by through space and time. And it's it's almost a form of communion with somebody at a very deep level that you may not have in this life, but what they have put on canvas or in stone or on the stage or, you know, written in music is is something really deeply special to that person that you have access to that without the tangible thing that they've created, you you wouldn't be able to commune with that. And um, that's a very spiritual interpretation of what art is. But as a Catholic, I, I think that's a pretty good explanation and one of its really special functions. I really love that when, you know, so for me, the, some of the experiences with art that, that, like you were saying, that sharing with the things, the pointing, the pointing out something that they've seen, that they've experienced that, you know, I, I always think about, well, I love the, like the Hudson River Valley painters with the landscapes and the beautiful light and things like that. Yeah. Even when I've lived in places where I have beautiful views outside my windows every day, over time, I stop noticing, you know, except, you know, for moments where you stop and you think, oh, what, what beautiful things. But when you, it's like the painters help me to kind of refocus and open my eyes to a different sense because I'm unlike all the beauty that's around me anyway they're they're just representing this experience that they have with the light and the beauty or or you know whatever the painting might be that they're but I can yeah it's I can see the the power yeah yeah, it captures something more than just an image you know or Mm -hmm. or whatever it's a it's something it's an experience yeah, it's not just a replication of a natural scene. It is that plus the infusion of an immaterial experience that might be conveyed with how they handle the light or, um, you know, a, a kind of a misty glow that they cast over here. Or what I love about certain landscapes is you don't notice how many different colors there are in nature until it's in paint. You know, there's lavender or there's um, red, even in things that are just green leaves. But the way that the light reflects those things, uh, you know, painters can capture for us. But do, you, is, do you have a favorite time period or artist to teach or research? Well, um, I do. Yes. <laughs> when it was when I was in college, I I really liked modernism and even postmodernism. And I know those two phrases 
to a Catholic homeschooling audience might not have a, a welcome home, but um, it, yes, a lot of it's weird. Um, some of it's not fun or good to look at. Um, but what I really liked about it, and maybe it was because I was in my youth, but what I liked about it is the, um, it was almost like the working out of philosophy in material. And some of it was, you know, atheistic, nihilistic philosophy that you wouldn't ever want to, you know, really um, take on into yourself. But with every decade of the 20th century, you know, there was a new group of artists that was responding to the one that came before it. I really liked that intergenerational communication or that, you know, this is a response to this work of art. And even in the most minimalistic, simple works, there was a, you know, a major philosophical idea being expressed. So it was very reductionist, you know, some of it's not beautiful. Um, you really have to struggle to see the beauty in some of those things. Um, I really liked the the high level intellectual thought behind some of the movements that that really um, got me thinking about why people make things. It's it's there's so much behind it that they're thinking about. You spoke about that in your podcast. I yeah. really appreciated that discussion. I, I, I really, really enjoyed um, that discussion about how to look at modern art. I, I think there is something really fascinating in that discussion that they are having at that moment in time with their piece of art, but yeah. they're having it with people in the past for their contemporaries. And yeah, um, yeah, it's really yeah and I mean and, and even that they were questioning the act of painting itself um you know even though a lot of them I think went too far and were maybe a little too tortured a lot of them you know drank a lot and were abusive to their spouses so they were they were overly wrapped up in the philosophical pursuit and it led to some of their destruction sadly but they were they were almost tormented with what are we even doing when we make art and that question. And I think it's an important question to ask. And, and they were sometimes in vain um, questioning what it is they were doing. Um, you know, the, the, some artists declared the end of painting, you know, I've painted a black canvas, painting is over, painting is dead. We could never go back, you know, the Renaissance, you know, artists, they, it was falseness, you know, to try to replicate reality is actually falseness because it's not real. And, you know, uh, people like Jackson Pollock, who, whose action paintings, that's what they call real art because it was such a raw, emotive, what they call genuine thing that they were doing. Um, and it's fascinating to engage with that thought that thinking and those arguments um again <laughs> you can't just end art you can't just declare that it's over and say well we ended it we can all go home now <laughs> <laughs> um so you know you you take that into account and and luckily you know people are still making art and they're still fine with doing representational things and you know um making beautiful things uh, you know sadly a lot of artists 
you know, would reject beauty as an ideal in the work that they make, kind of as a maybe over acknowledging the fact that there's evil in life. And, uh, you know, if, if, if there's evil in life, what's the point of even engaging with beauty? Again, that goes back to that nihilistic thought pattern that ends nowhere and is a major dead end spiritually and uh, professionally. So again, to wrap that part of the conversation up, I thought that was fascinating when I was in college. I still do. Um, I think though, there's so much more to art than just that short time period. So much that came before it. Um, I really enjoy as a Catholic counter-reformation art. Um, much of the 16th century reformers rejected art and were suspicious of its presence in liturgical settings, going so far as to reject crosses and especially crucifixes. They, call, they thought that they were idolatrous. Some of the reformers um, permitted religious imagery in the home. Um, John Calvin actually did not even think that private devotional images were acceptable. Um, their claim was that to try to depict the things of the spirit was inadequate and blasphemous and amounted to idolatry. So, of course, you know, we responded with the Council of Trent to the reformers. Um, there was a small section in the, the council papers that addressed the use of art. I, and I think they did acknowledge that some uh, religious art had gone too far and maybe some of it was used in superstitious situations. So they acknowledged that um, I think the wording is every superstition shall be removed, all lasciviousness and lust be avoided. There be nothing seen that is disorderly or that is confusedly arranged, nothing profane, nothing indecorous, seeing that holiness becometh the house of God. So that they're talking about art in liturgical settings, and those standards still exist today. I think that we would all agree that those are reasonable standards. Um, the bishop must give his approval for what goes into a liturgical settings. I don't know any Catholic that would have a problem with that. So... The Catholic Church maintained that art was acceptable for churches so long as it was holy and inspired true Orthodox belief, whereas the Protestant reformers held the opposite position that it actually was inadequate for worshiping of God. But interestingly, they did support what you might call secular art, like a landscape painting, because it gave glory to God by honoring his creation. So there is that. Um, what I like about counter-reformation art, at least in terms of its teaching potential, um, is that it's it was very explicit in its Catholic teaching because a lot of it was commissioned by the church to respond to the reformers who rejected teachings such as the sacrament of reconciliation, certain beliefs about the Eucharist, the primacy of uh, the chair of St. Peter, the Marian dogmas, and especially about how Christ's death um, atones for our sins. So the reformers um, diverge from Catholic teaching in a lot of those ways. And then the art in response to the reformers specifically dealt with a lot of those topics. Um, and a lot of the faithful at the time were illiterate too. So the art was that much more important in terms of teaching the faithful and keeping them from being swept up into reformation theology. Um, so it's, it's so rich because it's 
it's um, Orthodox, it's specifically Catholic, and it's really neat in terms of its role in one of the major movements of the church. Always an exciting time to talk about. And we can we can reference back with those too. You know, I mean, it's not the first time that uh, images and such had come up. You know, I mean, we the iconoclast heresy, of course, you know, you know, what what do we do with images? It all brings back to that original discussion, of course, in the early church after incarnation. What do we do? What do we do with images? What do we do with these sacred images? And I, I think that that whole conversation um, and the ebbs and flows of that conversation through time are, are just fascinating as well. Yes. Uh, to sort of see about uh, how they're going to influence what is happening at different times, different places. And mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm probably most out of place here because my my art history knowledge is is limited, although I have little glimpses of it. But as you were explaining the different ways that the art is, well, especially with the modern showing the thoughts, the the, the thinking that's going on, and even as you were uh, that post-Reformation sort of thing, I was thinking more about the different forms of music and the different philosophies that were, or the philosophy that was developing in each of those times and just how what you were explaining clearly is reflecting that as well you know the the nihilistic sort of uh god is dead um nietzsche uh atheistic sort of things coming out out of the you know recent history or even back in the you know then atonal music that sort of thing coming about too just a different sort of breaking of like once you throw out god and order these different things are you're going to explore that a little bit or at least if you're in that area, but, and still, yeah, like the, the Reformation things too, just uh, those, the, those thoughts that are going on coming out in the art and being able to see some of that. That's interesting. I love, yes. I love that conversation of that art at every, any time period, it wasn't just art by itself. It, it was uh, representing or uh, mirroring what was going on in the church and in the time of the discussions of the philosophy. And, and I think you could take that back to the Middle Ages, to the, to the scholastics, the art that you've seen at that time is really representative of, of the things that are, are being discussed at that moment in time. And probably even taking it back to in, within the ancient world as well, right? The philosophy is looking at man, looking at form. What, what are they trying to represent? It's the discussions and uh, the comments and the debates that are going on, we're seeing it manifested in the art at the same time. I, I think that's a something interesting to, to sort of an interesting topic to explore. And it, it goes to show how seriously that humans have taken creative work since you know the beginning of human history. Absolutely. It's a vibrant conversation. And you know, going back to the modern, postmodern, you know, you'll hear people say, well, that's not art. And, you know, it's okay for you to think to not accept it as something you'd really want to look at, or even, you know, you don't have to say it's beautiful. Some of it's not. Some of it's absurd and ridiculous. And um at the same time, I think that it's important to try to understand what the artist was trying to convey even if the result is not pleasing or offensive or bizarre, because 
that's still part of the conversation. And, you know, you know, as with, with any debate in any discipline, responding to something that's in error is also valid and part of the conversation. And, you know, as we just talked about with the counter-reformation art, um, we didn't fold up our tent and, you know, say, oh, okay, you're right. You're right. Yeah. This, this is wrong. We're not going to do this anymore. No, it was a, the church paid artists to start working and make some of the most incredible works of art that, you know, we still thankfully have. And, you know, that conversation is playing out in creative work, which is really neat. And um, both sides are more illuminated by having the, the claim and the response. Well, at this point, I would like to kind of shift a little bit and, and talk about the new art history course that Therese is teaching this semester of spring of 2024. It's the uh, the first semester that you're teaching at Therese. Um, do you want to say a bit about that? And then I have some questions for both of you guys to to discuss further. Yes, we, we are so excited. This year for our online um, course, we offered a one semester music history course that was in the first semester. And I know we had been long time in discussion of wanting to add art history to our courses here. I had always tried to sort of integrate a little bit of art history within our standard history courses, just because I think it's such an important addition to how we're looking at the times and the places and what people did. And you can really see that sort of incarnational physical manifestation of what's going on at the same time in the art. So I like that integrated approach. And we had been discussing it for a long time. And I know Stephen's wife, Maggie Hayden, who um, does our curriculum development, when she came on board, uh, she is also has a art history background. And we started discussing and we sort of put together a one semester overview. It's going to be pretty quick. We're going we're gonna to start in the classical world and sort of work our way through um, to get as close as we can to the modern era and sort of touch on all the major um, time periods and elements and the, some of the, I call them the major works that everyone should know about. And so we're going to try and hit all of those and keeping it all in light of uh, looking at it through that lens of the incarnation and the human aspect of art. We're going to be opening our course. I'm very excited. We're going to actually read John Paul the Saint John Paul II's letter to artists. That's going to be our sort of opening reading, and then we're going to go through all the time periods, and then we'll actually end with that as well as sort of a reflective um, part of the overall course. Uh, so I'm very very excited about it this year. So it's it's all it's going to be offered to high schoolers primarily at this point. It's an exciting addition to the course offerings and. Excited to hear how it goes. So, Amanda, how do you like to approach the study of art history, especially in in the context of our Catholic classical education? Well, I think what Therese said about hitting major points is important. Um, I think you know the world of art and art history is so vast; you you could never cover absolutely everything um i think your family each family needs to decide for themselves how much of it they want to incorporate um 
what is appropriate for the the ages of the family um you know <laughs> my sweet 13 year old son who's been around me you know his whole life and I, I'm about art you know says to me I don't like art mom I you know when you take me to museums you know I'm like <laughs> I did not you know <laughs> and, and maybe he's just saying that to uh get a rise out of me hmm. but you know that's okay I still think that kids like that should be taught how to look at art how to break it down visually here at the museum we call it visual literacy it's a skill that can apply to so many different things in life um being able to look at something creative and to discuss what's going on by interpreting what you see right in front of you you, you don't necessarily have to know everything about the artist or the movement or anything that is an important part of um, looking at art. Uh, not only does it ignite a lot of different intellectual processes, but I find it it's so rewarding. It, it's such a neat thing to be able to engage with something creative on that level. So I would encourage families to, um, you know, along with the... Uh, I guess, historical side, the facts, the context, the socio-political um, elements. I would encourage families just to sit with a work of art and, you know, ask the simple question, what do you see? What is happening in front of you? And even the most simple responses are wonderful because they get the conversation going. Um, you know, oh, his face looks mean. Why do you think his face looks mean? Well, he's scowling. Okay, that that's pretty rudimentary, but some adults can't even do that. And we teach adults at the museum how to do that. And then maybe the next level is, well, why do you why do you think Christ is wearing a red robe? Oh, I don't know. Well, red is a symbol of his passion. And, and that might be next level, but those kinds of conversations and questions help create for students that an artist's choices mean something there's meaning behind every artistic choice and that I think is the real magic and the real lifelong reward that you can have if you can develop that skill that seems very applicable to all facets of life too yeah and that kind of thing doesn't necessarily take special training. You don't have to read art history books to be able to do that. That's something that anybody with a sensitive eye and some patience for the conversation can facilitate. You know, I really love a lot of this just because at Colby, we have a very strong emphasis on history and literature. And so we're going through the Greeks and the Romans and the medieval times, and we're focused on that history. And then we add in that literature. So you have both what's happening and what what's going on in the people's minds as far as literature but adding in this art you're getting you're getting another level of that you know because that's capturing a part of the culture of what they what they were interested in what they were what was important to them and what survived the test of time as well so what we have has has survived you know so and obviously music would fit into that as well so what are people listening to what are they what are they moved by at that point so this just helps for me at least whenever you can add that in it helps you to really capture what were the people like at that point what was important to them what what, what were they moved by 
Um, so that adds that level of depth to the picture. And again, like Teresa, you were saying, our, our thing is, how did the incarnation change everything? You know, what is the impact of that? And to see that come through, through the art and through, um, through all of these things is, is it just, it's so much more of a rich picture than for, for that. It's a tangible object that's part of our heritage, right? Our shared heritage. We all look back on those times and moments and we can see it in the buildings and the art in the, uh, these creations, these human creations that people made to, um, yeah, express a particular idea or thought, or like you said, Stephen, like interest. Uh, my favorite thing to do is when I've been lucky enough to go overseas with students, I, I tell them you walk into these churches or buildings. And if you're able to just to walk over, stand over next to the wall, just put your hand out and you're like, how many other people have been here before? Who else has looked on this painting? The builder who made it or the designer or the architect, you know, that they, you know, why did they do it in this way and really have a, a connection with them here and now today, all the way back during that time. Um, there's something really, really special and about that, that we're all connected that way. Yes, I resonate with that. You know, we have the sacraments of the church, but as Catholics, that extent we we live a sacramental life. You know, our our faith is small as sacramental. We're always thinking about material and how it relates to the spiritual. And you know, art is one of those unofficial sacraments of the church it's always been used to convey the truths of our faith and um, the immaterial reality that enlivens everything i think with without it so much cultural heritage would be missing from our tradition we're, we're not angels we we need those things you know the god made us so that we would these would help us draw him i mean and so thanks thank goodness we have these artists who who help to to do that even i mean in the church but but we need them we're, we're yeah we need them as people so. there have been a, a couple of really wonderful books written about beauty well more than a couple many um a couple that i have read um one is uh beauty in the light of the redemption by dietrich von hildebrand that one discusses what the role of beauty is after the fall and what beauty can mean um, with our experience of evil. And another one is um, a book just called On Beauty by an artist, an author named Elaine Scarry. And she discusses at length that beauty has this quality of begetting that when we encounter beauty, we want to possess it. We want to reproduce it. We want to capture it. It's why we're moved to take a photo of a sunset. It's, you know, the child is the result of the beauty of two spouses. Um, you know, an artist sees something beautiful and sketches it immediately. It has that reproductive quality to it. And it's just innate to our humanity. It's, it's, kind of a thing we can't help but do it reminds me uh, there's this quote in Dante and it doesn't translate exactly but it, it's sort of it, it's referencing that art art is like the grandchild of God right it's what we we God made us and then we're making art to 
um, represent, like you said, that beauty mm-hmm. that we see around us. That we, that we need to, we have to. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. We'll find links to those to include in our show notes. Would you say a bit about how to approach a difficult or strong subject matter and also uh, introducing art to maybe more sensitive kids or kids of various ages, you know, for folks who are like, well, but what about this? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I think parents always have the ultimate authority with what they show their kids. Um, you don't have to shock them to teach them about art history and you probably shouldn't. Um, I think as they get older, your children will show you what they can process. Um, you know, luckily a lot of the art that comes from the Catholic tradition is not going to, um, not going to corrupt your child's imagination. There are some works of art that I have trouble looking at. For example, um, Judith beheading Holofernes, um, it's not a, a scene that I like to view. Um, it's, they're incredible paintings that the artists who have taken on that subject matter, you know? Um, so I just think as a parent, you just scream out what you don't want to show your children, you know, your children best. Um, at the same time, um, sometimes kids can process things that we don't think they can. And you as a parent, you know what they can. Um, I'm protective of my children. I don't show them everything. <laughs> um, they might not be ready for it at 10, but at 14, they are. Uh, I, I just think it's it's a gut gut decision by the parent. And, and, you know, if you're unsure, spend some time with something for a, a day or two, a couple days, maybe pray with an image. Um, you know, if the educational value is to be achieved by a work of art trumps, you know, Judith taking her sword to Holofernes, then then go for it. Um, it's in the Bible. You know, you can take a painting like that and read the scripture at the same time and ask your kids, you know, is has this scene been accurately conveyed? Is does it match the intensity of the scene from the Bible or or does it amplify it? I mean, sometimes some of the most disturbing moments in the Bible are so laconic. And you think, wait, they just did that. And the 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 author is kind of deadpan with how they wrote it, or at least the transla- translation. But then Caravaggio paints it, and it's like, yeah, that that actually is probably what happened. Or even crucifixion scenes, a lot of them have probably been softened for our benefit, considering the torture that Jesus actually endured and the physical suffering and the way his body would have looked. Um, I've read that he probably would have been nude, but that the the cloth is added for our benefit. And so that in liturgical settings, you know, we see Christ more modestly. Um, so, you know, even difficult scenes, they are amplified by art or they are toned down by art. Um, and I think that viewing art with scripture is helpful and could be a really enriching way to approach, you know, stronger subject matter. The Faith and Life series that our elementary and middle school religion courses um, utilize, they, there are many, uh, many images that are interspersed among the pages. 
and I think the content of our conversation today is very applicable applicable and will um enlighten and really enrich the the religious studies that the courses that that our families are working through. I think that's going to be really helpful. And I and I got to thinking as you were giving your thoughts on how to approach the side of things, it's it kind of goes along with some of the things that are I, I guess our high schoolers read some of the, you know, much of the literature that are, that is in our curriculum is difficult and addresses difficult topics and, and might be, at first be like, well, why, why are they reading that? That's or something, but it, it's like this, um, the context in which it's introduced and in the discussions that we're able to have about it to help them uh, process it. I think that is, this goes right in hand with that. What do you, what do you think about that, Therese? Does that, I don't know that I'm really expressing that very. No, I think um, you're right. I think you're right. So it's, it's the idea of we're working through it together with them. I think, like Amanda said, you're, you're not going to just sort of send your child off into a museum by themselves, right? You're going to work through it with them. They're going to see something, and it might be a difficult subject matter. Um, but consider that, and that you're doing it with your child. So you're looking at it together. You can explain, you can discuss. And I think it get the same as when we read these works, right? With your teachers in the class, you know, we're, we're working through it together so that you, we can focus on those things that are, are important to focus on. And perhaps later when they're older uh, and they're able to delve more deeply into more difficult topics, they will, they, they'll do it again when they're to college, uh, their professors and such. And so I think doing it alongside them is something that is, it can really, is really beneficial and doing it together, learning the arts together. I think you know, for parents, if they don't have that art background, do it with your kid. I mean, if you're exploring it for the first time and they are too, you're going to come at it different time periods, different points in your life, right? From a child to an adult and uh, sort of explore them together. Because you know what these these great works, you know, so many people have gone through and say, yeah, this is, this is an important work. Uh, everyone should see this and discuss it. Um, and if you're, you're a little worried, just come at it honestly and simply to get it started simple. I, I don't have homeschool experience, but as I listen to you explain, I actually think that um, a homeschool environment is the perfect place for difficult subject matter because the child is in the safety of their home. They don't have to feel embarrassed in front of their peers if they, you know, see something. Um, they, they can say what they're really feeling because they're with their family or with their co-op group, you know, the, the small intimate group. Um, I think, you know, in a classroom setting, in a school, a student might not want to react naturally. They might self-censor. Um, I, I think the safe, the, maybe safety is not the right word, but the, the intimacy and the closeness of a homeschool classroom might be the, the better, the best place to introduce tougher subject matter. So this episode is airing on Ash Wednesday, actually, as as Lent is beginning this year. Um, and you have uh, multiple episodes about themes of redemption and penance. And I, I would love for you to say a bit about that. We will point folks to those episodes and, and anything you want to say in reference to those or along those lines about how we can contemplate these themes during Lent with the aid of artwork. One of my favorite paintings 
of spiritual significance is uh, called Christ in the House of His Parents by John Everett Millay. And I this was the subject of one of our podcasts. This would be a all, great all ages painting to discuss um, with students. It comes from a movement in art uh, called the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. And it was a group of five English painters who came together in 1848 to react to Raphael and Renaissance painting that tended in the direction of uniformity and kind of exaggerated um, conventional ways of depicting beauty. And that sounds a little bit abstract and opaque, but art was was kind of getting a little bit rote and um, one standard of beauty, you know, everybody has this nose, everybody has this height forehead, everybody has this jawline, all the women are equally curvy in this way, all of the men are, you know, Adonis level muscular men in this form. Um, almost like otherworldly and this group of painters rejected that they they were much more into uh realism in their naturalism details a lot of symbolism when i look at their paintings it's it's almost like reading the chronicles of narnia there's so much detail now it's not fantasy based i wouldn't say that but every all the paintings are just chock full of really interesting even literary detail and this particular painting um, shows uh, a young Jesus in um, his family's carpentry workshop. And we have John the Baptist coming towards him with a bowl of water. And this symbolizes, you know, the baptism of Christ and John the baptizer. And um, I, I think Jesus has actually, he's cut his hand on a nail or something, which prefigures his crucifixion. Out the back door, we see um, sheep trying to get through the gate. And, you know, just there's just so many directions you could take this and and it's it's wonderful for Lent. There's a reed basket off to the corner. Um, there are two by fours stacked in the corner, and that prefigures his cross. None of it is explicit or disturbing in any way, but you could extract a lot of themes from that during Lent, um, maybe for an older audience. Um, I am very moved by um, images along the lines. There's a lot of different paintings and sculptures called Lamentation Over the Dead Christ. And what it is, is the body of Christ after his crucifixion and figures such as Mary Magdalene crying over the body and they're caring for it and they're moving it. That's a very powerful image to pray with and reflect on. Some of it can get a little bit tough, I think, for smaller children because it, it does show Christ after his death. Um, there are a lot of paintings of St. Jerome that I really like where he's, you know, in his cave and he's, you know, really tough on himself with his rocks. And um, those are good images to think about in terms of, you know, extreme forms of penance. Um, so many paintings of saints in their martyrdom, I think can be helpful for Lent. Um, so there's, there's so, there's a range of 
directions you could go in. And Google image search is a wonderful tool. Type in the Lenten spiritual theme that you're looking for, and you'll get a lot of different choices is a good place to start. Okay. Okay. So for families or uh, groups that are looking to make a trip to the museum, what, what suggestions, how would you, how would you advise um, folks who are prepping for a trip to the museum? Well, depending on where you live, you know, if you have access to a large museum, um, one amazing collection of religious Christian art that I would suggest is the Detroit Institute of Arts. It's, it's an incredible collection. Um, it's, I believe it's a free museum. Um, so if you're in the Midwest, I would definitely make a trip to spend time with their permanent collection. If you want to, um, and, and there's a, there's enough there for everybody. There's, you know, if you want to avoid a certain part of the museum, you can, it's big enough. Um, if you want to go and, and maybe like, a with a homeschool group, many museums welcome homeschool groups, just like any other school tour. So just call in advance if you want, if you want some kind of structured, um, lesson from a docent or a tour guide. Um, most museums list what exhibitions are on display at a certain time, what's coming up. So if there's a certain topic that you really want to, uh, show your children, then book your tour during that time. Um, we, for example, book tours year round. It doesn't have to be during the school year. So if, uh, you know, whatever works for your group, just call in advance. Sounds good. Are there any, I guess it probably is heavily dependent on what, if you're coming to see a certain exhibition, what kind of prep the, the um, folks would do at home before they come. But is there any sort of general I'm thinking back to my orchestra days when I worked for the orchestra. We we tried to put together some like, here's what to expect when you come to a concert, this sort of thing. Do you have similar things on the museum side that you would make suggest to folks? Well, on our website, for example, I can't speak for other museums. But we have a lot of downloadable lesson plans, and that's not necessarily geared to what you're going to see in the galleries, but you can get a sense of our educational approach and what how we convey art topics to various age groups. So some of our uh, packets are, you know, apply to this group, this age kids or this age kids or that age kids. Uh, we also have a very, again, speaking from my own museum, we have a very responsive education department. So any question you have, take advantage of the person there who's booking the tour, you know, hey, I've got you know, I want to accomplish this, or can you send me your docent outline in advance? I think we would probably do that. Um, we try to tailor everything so that um, everybody gets something out of it. We, we, you know, don't, we keep it general enough that it would apply to any type of, of group coming in just according to age level. I get overwhelmed very easily for with uh, visual things. So I was thinking of me and my children. It's like, let's take snack breaks when you can. If, you, if it's a local museum, break it up a little bit if you if you, if you can. For, if you're like me, yeah, where looking at one picture for for a while is great, and then a couple, but then if I can go back and then another weekend come back and do it, that's great for me too. But 
museum fatigue is a real thing and I'm with you. I'm in museums and my life has been dedicated to visual art and my eyes get tired after about probably 90 minutes to two hours. You just can't read or look anymore, especially at those big museums where you feel like I've got to see it all. This is my only time block I have. It is sad to leave before you've seen everything, but Luckily, with those big museums in their permanent collections, they don't change them very often. So you can come back, you know, when you have more time. Yeah, definitely pace yourself with some of those big collections. That's a great point. Just the logistics of taking your family or a group, just kind of knowing yourselves like that and what you need, what you need in order to make that a good trip. Yes. Snack breaks in between. That's that's <laughs> yes. what works for most of us. We have to stop after like that ninety minutes, like you said. Take a get a snack, take a break, but the, then we're back at it. Wise, yes, good point. Amanda, this has been a real joy getting to meet you and visit with you today. Do you have any final thoughts you want to leave with our listeners? One of our mottos here at the Fort Wayne Museum of Art is. If you think you don't like art, we have something for you. And okay. it's it's how we approach all of our marketing, all of our community partnerships. Again, it's going back to the idea that, that art is a uniquely human pursuit. And whether or not you can make it or not, it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to engage with it at whatever level you feel comfortable. We always stress that you don't have to be educated in art to get something out of it. Um, for example, we have a, a big glass wing of glass sculpture, and we find that, you know, for the more technical minded people, they're really interested in the process of making glass sculpture because it is a very scientific process. Um, it's, it's so beautiful. And, you know, for, for people who really want that eye candy experience with art, you have that. And it's for many artists, it's very spiritual, whether or not they profess a particular religion, they're often expressing um, something very internal and special to them. So um, I, I would encourage people that don't have to be an expert and it's okay to come at it from your own discipline and enjoy it from that realm. Okay. Amanda, it was wonderful getting to meet you. I have I truly, Bonnie turned me on to your podcast and I have sat down, I've listened to like every single one I can find on there. I, I just really, I really enjoyed and appreciated the conversation um, and listening in. I hope someday I'll get over to Indiana. My husband goes on one of his research trips and you'll have to stop by. And you can see okay, Please do. Sure. I would love to meet you and thank you for the kind words. We will have lots of links in our show notes, so please check those. And uh, we'd love to hear from our listeners. If you make a trip to the museum, let us know how that goes and and what you enjoyed about it and how you prepared for it. That might help other folks as well. That would be great. Um, Amanda, once again, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for coming to visit with us. I hope that we get to chat again soon. Thank you. Subscribe to the Colby Cast on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating or review. And as always, feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, St. Ignatius of Loyola, Holy Saints and Angels, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.